Would you join me in standing for the reading of God's word? Today's sermon text will be 1 Corinthians verses 2 through 16. Sorry, 1 Corinthians 11 verses 2 through 16. 1 Corinthians 11 verses 2 through 16. Now I praise you because you remember me in everything and hold firmly to the traditions just as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of a woman, and God is the head of Christ. Every man who has something on his head while praying or prophesying disgraces his head. But every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying disgraces her head, for she is one and the same as the woman whose head is shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, let her also have her hair cut off. But if it is disgraceful for a woman to shave her hair, to have her hair cut off, or her head shaved, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to have his head covered, since he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. For man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. For indeed, for indeed, man was not created for the woman's sake, but woman for the man's sake. Therefore, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. However, in the Lord, neither is woman independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as the woman originates from the man, so also the man has his birth through the woman, and all things originate from God. Judge for yourselves. It is, is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him? But if a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given to her for a covering. But if one is inclined to be contentious, we have no other practice, nor have the churches of God. That ends the reading of God's word. Please be seated. Let's pray. Lord, we do, again, thank you for your word. And we acknowledge that we are always in need. Ministering spirit of you, our Lord. So give us great attention. Arrest our attention and enable me, by the power of your spirit, to communicate your truth for your glory and the good of your people. And the salvation of the lost. Amen. Uh, as we continue our series in 1 Corinthians, uh, we come to chapter 11, um, a, a notoriously um, difficult passage, um, in which the Apostle Paul um, turns his attention now um, to matters um, of conduct within the church, that is, within the corporate worship setting. Now, over the course of chapters 11 through 14, um, he will tackle uh, many different subjects. And he will conclude in chapter 14 and verse 40 with these words. And that is that all things should be done decently and in order. Now, we've seen over the course of 10 chapters that Christians in Corinth um, are out of order in many ways. Amen? But we mustn't forget from out of what Christ 
called these new believers. Look back at chapter 6, verse 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. In other words, if this characterizes who you are, you're not entering the kingdom. Such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. Glorious, isn't it? In other words, the gospel had a huge impact on Corinth. This is what some of them were a people called out from all kinds of lifestyles and into Christ, washed by the blood of Christ, sanctified, set apart to Christ, justified in Christ, baptized by the Holy Spirit of Christ, that is in regeneration. New creatures in, in Christ. New creatures in Christ. Would they be tempted by those kind of things the rest of their life? Obviously, last 10 chapters. <laughs> but they're new creatures in Christ. And at this point, they're having an identity problem. Because the gospel that saved them, they were not allowing that gospel to shape them. They were still very attached to old pagan practices, and it was the cultural norms of the day that were influencing and molding these people and not the free grace gospel of Jesus Christ. We've seen that time and time again. So um, he concluded in the last section with verse 1. Verse 1 really belongs to the last section that we looked at over the past couple of weeks, he concludes there, verse 1, be imitators of me just as I am of Christ. Literally, to mimic. Mimic me as I mimic Christ. So here now in verse 2, notice, now I praise you because you remember me in everything and hold firmly to the traditions just as I delivered them to you. So here the apostle um, he begins with a, a word of praise, a word of, of encouragement, and he refers to the fact here that the members of this congregation um, thought of him often, they prayed for him regularly, and they hold to the traditions. Now, holding to the traditions, beloved, um, has to do with a body of teaching. This isn't just stuff that Paul made up. Traditions of truth communicated to them as he preached, as he 
taught them. He was with them for a year and a half, remember. And also, as he wrote to them. Now, remember, this is very important. Back in chapter 5 and verse 9, we learn that this isn't the first letter that he wrote to them. This is actually 2 Corinthians. Now, the very first letter is lost to us, and by way of divine inspiration, this is indeed 1 Corinthians, but there is another letter that he had written to them. So by way of teaching and preaching and writing, they adhere to the traditions of truth that he has communicated to them. So he, he compliments them in, in preparation to correct them yet again. Okay, are you with me? He corrects them in verse 3 with the word but. Because all that matters at the moment is what comes after the but. Okay? But first, before we get to the but of verse 3, here's what's going on. Corinth, as you know, was a Greek city. And it was under the sway of Roman culture. Under imperial Rome. And there were culturally appropriate ways, again, there were culturally appropriate ways in that day and in that location to express gendered difference. Gender identity known both to Paul and the Corinthians. They were well aware of this. They lived in this culture. And there were some women in the congregation here in the city of Corinth who were rejecting those normal ways of expressing those differences between husband and wife in particular, and they were shaking off, as it were, complementarian customs of male and female, of husband and wife. That is, distinctions designed by God. One of the customs of the day was for a married woman to wear a, a loosely fitted cloth draped over her head, over her hair, anytime she left her home, anytime she went out into public. It was simply a, a visual symbol of being married, like our wedding rings. Amen. My wife is out of town today, visiting her mother, caring for her mother in Sacramento. Um, this is a sign that um, I'm married to her. She's not here, but this is the symbol. So this was the symbol in that day for women. And, and during this time, within this culture, there was something of a, of a women's liberation movement happening. Lord have mercy. <laughs> Many women in that society, began to assert themselves, boasting a spirit of independence while, while throwing off convention, um, one of which was the wearing of these head coverings in public. It was a statement of autonomy, a statement of independence. I'm a self-governing individual, no longer feeling any obligation to wear this head covering in public. Now, important to note that within um, Roman Greco culture, um, a woman's long, loose hair, that's the idea, was often the object of male lust. And therefore, in much of the Mediterranean world, women were expected to cover their hair as an expression of modesty. 
of proper etiquette. Even single women in this day, um, not wanting to appear as immoral, would, would cover their head with a cloth out in public, okay? Now, also within the society of, of Corinth itself, um, in, in high society mistresses, um, the elite society, remember there were many, many um, lucrative businesses and very wealthy people um, throughout Corinth. So um, within the elite society and even within the high society of mistresses, they were also among the few um, who um, would wear their hair down, loosed over their shoulders. And it was a practice that was beginning to creep into the church, okay? So that's what's going on. So here's the but, verse three. But I want you to understand, okay? I just built you up. Thanks for praying for me and thanks for holding to the truth that I've taught you. But I want you to understand something. Christ is the head of every man. And the man is the head of a woman, and God is the head of Christ. So Paul sets out three instances of, here it is, word of the day, headship. Headship. So as to illustrate the proper order of things, God to Christ, Christ to man, man to woman. Point number one, theological point very important that we understand this, and that is the relationship between God the Father and God the Son being described here is functional, not ontological, okay? It's functional. Or in what theologians, um, the phrase they often use, um, they call it economic subordination, okay? He's not referring to things in an ontological sense. In other words, it does not have to do with the being of God the Father and the being of God the Son. But he's speaking with regard to their certain roles. Headship not being ontological means that God the Father is not superior to God the Son. In essence, they are equal, amen? All that the Father is... The Son also is, in essence and nature. Christ and the Father are co-equal. God, the Father, is not more God than Christ. Witness, amen? Very important that we understand this. They are equally God in, in essence and nature. Jesus, the Christ, is equal with God the Father. And remember, Christ means Messiah. So this here underscores Jesus' redemptive role as the son, as Messiah. He was the sent one for a reason, amen? It was not an arbitrary act within the Godhead that the son would go. <laughs> he was sent. And, and while there is essential equality within the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, there is also diversity among the persons of the Godhead, Okay? It's very important that we don't miss that or we'll miss the context of the text, okay? Now, Jesus did not become the son at the incarnation. Jesus did not become the son at the baptism. Jesus did not become the son at his resurrection. He is the eternal son of God, equal to the father, 
in essence and nature, very God from very God, co-equal, co-eternal, co-existing. Nevertheless, while Jesus was on earth during his public ministry, he said many times, the Father who sent me, fill in the blank. In John 5, he said this, the Son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the things the Son also does in like manner. He subjected himself to the leading of the Holy Spirit, by the way, for the glory of the Father in his earthly mission. And Jesus also said in that human body that I am. Before Abraham was, I am. The covenant name of Yahweh. Before Abraham was, I am. And they picked up stones to stone him because he was declaring to be God. Amen? So he's not speaking ontologically in this verse. Now, as the incarnate, resurrected, ascended son of God, what did Jesus say? All authority in heaven and on earth have been given to me. Okay? So we understand the the difference of what's being communicated here. Now, with that being said, verse 3 is the divine design. It is the perfect paradigm for orderliness in family and in church and society. You still with me? If you get it wrong at the top, again, if you get it wrong at the top, the bottom falls out. Okay? So he begins there. Verse 3, I want you to understand Christ is the head of every man. Man is head of the woman. God is the head of Christ. Okay? Verse 4. Every man who has something on his head while praying or prophesying disgraces his head. So we also understand, do we not, as we read earlier, that men and women are also ontologically equal. Amen? Man, woman, equal in the sight of God, for in the image of God he created them male and female, and they became one. But our roles are different by divine design. So here he says, every man who has something on his head while praying or prophesying disgraces his head. It literally literally says praying or prophesying while having down upon his head. And by the way, Jewish men at this time did not cover their heads when they prayed. That's an exercise they invented. That didn't come about until the fourth century, so it's not that, okay? Now, at least, at the least at this point, um, having his head covered um, would appear to be practicing a custom for women, okay, at the least. And that was a customary sign in the culture uh, as that of subordination, Okay? But I believe there is much more than that being conveyed here. And I believe what's at hand is an improper symbol of mediation, not subordination. Okay? So you're going to have to follow me through this argument. All right. Notice, Christ is the head of every man. Every man who has something on his head while praying or prophesying, disgraces his head. Who's his head? Jesus, 
Christ is the head of man. Having something on his head, he disgraces his head, who is Christ, the one and only mediator between God and man. Okay, so consider the culture of Corinth in this day. Men who were in positions of authority wore togas, okay? They wore togas. Um, wealthy men wore togas. Not everyone wore a toga. Um, Roman citizens in particular wore togas, all right? Now, part of which, the toga that is, would be draped over a man's head at certain times and certain times only, all right? He would pull it up over his head, and it was literally called with covered head. In Latin, it was capita velato, capita head, velato veil. There's a statue in Corinth of Caesar Augustus wearing a toga draped over his head. You might remember this. See that? See, there's the toga, and he has it draped up and over his shoulder atop his um, head. Now, whenever a group of men gathered in this day, one man who represented that group veiled his head. Slide number two, okay? Here's a slide from the altar of peace. And if you notice, they're all wearing togas, but only one man in the center has his head veiled. He would be the officiate of the group, the father, if you will, um, of the group, the one who would ask, act as priest of the group. Now, um, a Roman who was regarded as the leader or the priest of the group would cover his head during ritual prayers to pagan gods, okay? So he would cover his head while offering a sacrifice. And he would do so with covered head, capita velate, okay? He would have his head covered. So this practice being brought into the church of Jesus Christ would dishonor his head, Christ, the one and only mediator between God and man. Also, pagans practice, so with capitive alato, head covered, they also practice augury. So while they would sacrifice an animal, they would take out some of its entrails, like the heart or the liver, to see if it was healthy, and they would pray, um, okay, should we go into war or not go into war? Do we go into battle, not go into battle? Yes or no? Good luck, bad luck. If the liver's healthy, we go. If it's not, we don't go. Augury. Superstition. Pagan practice. So above all of that, for a man in the church to cover his head um, provides for us um, the one being dishonored is Christ, who is the only mediator between God and man. So the man representing the group would be viewed as the mediator. Now, the only one who, who would do that in this time and in this day would be someone wealthy. So what else would that produce within the church? Well, it would inevitably allow um, class distinctions within the body of Christ because the only ones who wore a toga were typically wealthy Roman citizens, okay? 
So now you have class distinctions within the church going on. So continue with me, stay with me, consider for a moment a very high political official within the city of Corinth by the grace of God and the gospel preached by the apostle Paul comes to faith in Christ. And if he's a city official, he's going to be wealthy. So he's a member of the church. Is that good? Oh, amen. If God saves anyone, rich, poor, in between, hey, praise God. He's saved, but it cuts both ways. It cuts both ways here, and it creates now a potential gap between the wealthy and the poor, a gap between um, the socially influential and the socially insignificant. Okay, so consider this. When the apostle Paul wrote his epistle to the Romans, guess where he was? Corinth. He was there for a year and a half. He pens Romans from Corinth, and as he's wrapping up the letter, chapter 16 and verse 23, notice what he says. Gaius, host to me, and to the whole church greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, greets you. Okay, now, Erastus became a Christian. Archaeology has discovered an engraved stone. This is a paving stone. And if we could pull up that slide, please. Okay. So here's a paving stone, and it's in Latin. It's translated as Erastus from his own money paved this road. So it was, in other words, a campaign pledge that he was faithful to. Okay. So he holds a high position in the city of Corinth. He's very wealthy. He's a member of the church. And uh, it used to be inlaid with bronze. And the bronze was looted out of there later on. But you can still see the holes there. So again, it translates, Erastus from his own money paved this road. That is Erastus, the city official of Corinth. Okay, now, for the sake of, for the sake of illustration, here's dear brother Erastus. He walks into the church service, and he just does what he always does. He takes his toga, he pulls it up over his head, and he starts to pray, disgracing his head, who is Jesus. This sends the wrong message, and the wrong message is that of status, Within the church, a high-ranking city official has the right to represent the Christian church in approaching God when the slave back in the corner has just as much freedom and right to pray because the only qualification for the church is to be a sinner saved by grace. Okay? That's just, I'm not saying Erastus did that. This is just an example for the sake of illustration. Okay? In other words, the church is no place for status recognition. No place. The, the church is no place for financial um, application forms. How much do you make in a year? Did you see that on your membership guide? Or think, no, you did not. See, friends, th this is why, by the way, in the Church of Jesus Christ, a person who may be a United States senator, genuine Christian, or governor, or president of the United States, for that matter, that is great if God saves them and enfolds them into the body of Christ. But when they enter the assembly, all they are is a brother in Christ, and that's it. That is it. Now, remember... 
Context is always key. I'm, I'm building a case, okay? Now, remember what we have going on in the church of Corinth. We have divisions. We have factions. We have cult, cultural popularity. The, the celebrity fanaticism. The Corinthians were fans of those who had an elite status. Again, word, second word of the morning, status. David Garland, one commentator, says this, quote, for some, the Christian community had simply become another arena to compete for status, end of quote, which ought not to govern the worship service of our Lord Jesus Christ, okay? So a man having, having his head covered in this day in the church dishonors his head. His head is Jesus Christ, and perhaps, perhaps, the Christian women in Corinth were competing for status. It may be that the Apostle Paul addressed this issue, that is this pagan practice of mediation in his previous letter that he talks about in chapter 5, verse 9, which is unavailable to us. So, verse 4 is included in order to establish headship context for the issue at hand, and the issue at hand is women not having their head covered when they pray. Are you with me? That was a premonition that came to me when I was heating up my chicken and pasta during lunch in the kitchen, literally, so I ran in there and wrote it down. So that, that's why I said it may be, okay? Because from there... From verse 4, he moves in the opposite direction. And again, if divine design for orderliness is out of joint at the top, everything below falls apart. Okay? All right. So, verse 5. But every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying, disgraces her head. Who's her head? Her husband. She disgraces her husband. Now, the, woman, the, the word woman is gune and can also mean wife. A veiled woman, by the way, normally meant wife. In Latin, to take the veil means to marry. To take the veil is to marry. So here, her, her uncovered head likely um, is in reference to loosed hair down upon her shoulders. She disgraces her head, who is her husband, because loose hair flowing down the shoulders in this day was something that she would have only done in private, that is in her home, not out in public. So that sends a signal, doesn't it, in the church? I'm not under the authority of my husband. What do you think of that? Okay, while, notice, praying or prophesying, this could be like Mary in Luke 1, Philip's daughters in Acts 21 who, who prophesied, but whatever prophesying women did here is different from what Paul forbids in chapter 14 when he says that a woman is to remain silent within the church. And this may be just as simple as women speaking to un other women prophesying within the corporate gathering. Could be, don't know. 
Women pray this day, amen? To this day, women pray in church. Men pray in church. There is no prophesying from women or men. The canon's closed. There is no new revelation today. Amen. If someone says, thus says the Lord, the Lord told me this and the Lord told me that this morning, if it doesn't line up with scripture, it's from the devil. Who masquerades as an angel of light. Notice, she disgraces her head for she is one and the same as a woman whose head is shaved. What does that mean? Well, part of the culture in the ancient Mediterranean world was to shave the head of a woman caught in adultery. I know it's been taught that prostitutes in this day shave their head. Actually, there's no proof of that. So just throw that one away. But women who, were commi- who committed adultery and were caught, their head was shaved. The Greek orator and first century Roman historian Dio Chrysostom said this. He wrote, on the island of Cyprus... A woman guilty of adultery shall by local law have her hair cut off so as to be like that of a harlot. Okay? Verse 6. For if a woman does not cover her head, let her also have her hair cut off. But if it is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, then just cover your head. Okay, notice what Paul does here. Look. He says, okay, look, if it's shameful not to have your head covered, which it is, first century Christians in Corinth, you might as well just shave your head, ladies. If you're not going to cover your head, shave it. In other words, no respectable woman shaves her head. So if you're going to shame your head like this, not wearing a veil, go ahead and shame it like that. Shave it. So if it's disgraceful to have your head shaved, if it's graceful to have your long flowing locks cut off, you don't have to shave it off. Just put on a veil. That's all he's saying there. Paul's point, by not wearing the head covering, you are breaking down male-female distinctions in the church of Jesus Christ distinctions that should be present in the worship of Christ. Because if you don't wear the head covering, you're shaming your head, your husband. You shame your head, who's your husband, you shame Christ. It's all connected. You're you're casting off standards that reflect femininity. That was the problem, okay? Okay, now Paul's gonna go on and continue to argue, and now he argues from creation. Verse seven, for a man ought not to have his head covered since he's the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. For man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. For indeed, man was not created for the woman's sake, but woman for the man's sake. That's Genesis 1, 26 to 28. In other words, both men and women are image bearers of almighty God and they both reflect the glory of God. Amen, ladies. Amen, gentlemen. Adam was created out of the dust. God breathed life into him. He was created to honor God, his creator. The woman 
was formed out of the man, taken out of the side of the man, and her role is to honor the man, for when she honors the man from whom she was taken out of, she honors God. Are you all with me? She honors her creator as well. Therefore, verse 10, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. You're like, what does that mean? The word angel is, is angelos, simply messenger, okay? Now, um, it can mean an angel from heaven who, who's, you know, watching over the church, so to speak. Some believe that the angels referred to here are unseen observers within the corporate worship service. You see something of this in Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 10. Or the angels who are looking on in wonder at the church of Jesus Christ who are beneficiaries of gospel grace from which we read in 1 Peter this morning, right? They look on with awe and wonder. Could be that. But it can also mean human messenger. That's what I think this is. Angelos. John the Baptist was an angelos. He was a messenger. To the seven churches in Asia Minor, the seven churches in the revelation of Jesus Christ, to each one of the churches, he uses the word angelos. To the angel of the church of Thyatira, to the angel of the church of Ephesus, to the messenger, the, the angelos, which is probably the pastor. Okay? So these messengers... Uh, they may not be angelic beings, but they may be human scouts, okay? Human scouts possibly sent from city officials um, here in Corinth. Why? Well, remember this. Imperial Rome was filled with military tyrants. Why? Why? They operated by force because rebellion was a constant problem in the Roman Empire. And meetings like the early church had were very unusual. So what Rome did is they limited people's ability to meet openly, freely, and regularly together with the exception given to the Jews, of course. They had a legal exception to meet weekly on the Sabbath. So the early church, remember, where did they meet? Homes, and if you're going to meet in a home, you need to be in someone's home who's wealthy because they have the space. So typically, you would meet in a wealthy person's home because they had a large open atrium that could sit, some of them anyway, archaeology shows us, could, you, you could fit 150 people there. So within this open atrium, people would often walk by and observe the goings on there. They would lean in on the wall. They would observe, and what do they become after they observe what's going on there? Messengers of what? Of what's going on there. The angelos. So the Corinthian church, in this case, would have been sending the signal of immodesty with women who had their head uncovered. A terrible testimony to the world. A terrible testimony to the culture in that day. And perhaps may even raise the eyebrows of local city officials. That's all a possibility. So it's not, a, it's not difficult to grasp Paul's concern for the angelos. Are you still with me? Okay, good. 
Sometimes I can't tell. You're like, what on earth is he talking about? That's the con- countenance sometimes. It's like, Phew. all right. So if you smile more, you're like, amen, I'm right here. All right. Verse 11, however, in the Lord, neither is woman independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as the woman originates from the man, so also the man has his birth through the woman. And all things originate from God. Genesis 2. Genesis 2. So Paul, again, goes back to creation. Woman has her origin through man and out of, um, from, that, that is from out of Adam. And ever since then, man has his origin out of woman. Everyone has a mama, in other words. And you love your mama. I love my mama. Ultimately, everything originates, originates from God. God Almighty. He's created a world where there is unity and diversity that is in a proper, natural, biblical sense, okay? Biblical sense, not what we say, but what he say. Okay, so, therefore, the basis of Paul's argument is not merely from human culture, is it? He goes back to creation. Creation, by the way, that is, that was before the fall, okay? But why do I say that? Because some evangelical feminists contend, that's an oxymoron, by the way. <laughs> evangelical feminist, if you're a Christian woman, a gospel-centered Christian woman, you're a feminist, you need to check yourself. Word. He is so politically incorrect. Oh, you've heard nothing yet. <laughs> Evangelical feminists, they contend that headship and submission is part of the curse. True or not true? Duh, not true. Not true. And, and these are who we refer to as egalitarians and not complementarians. They believe that when they read um, in Christ there's no longer male or female, they think that that has to do with the distinction of roles. They're just now erased. That's utter nonsense. You know, egalitarians who hate the idea of authority and submission, not just male and female distinctions, but egalitarians of all stripes, this is how they sound in our day. You want to know what egalitarian is like? It's like this. Anytime anyone tries to attack God's authority, submission, design in this society, it results in words like this. I hate the president. I hate the police. That is rebellion against God. If you're a Christian, you talk like that, you need to stop now. Because your rebellion is against the creator who ordained roles of authority in society. Go home and read Romans 13 if you've got a problem with it. Verse 13. Judge for yourselves. 
Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Now, context in, in, in view here, answer, no, it's not proper. And by the way, when Paul says judge for yourselves here in verse 13, he's not saying you judge and then decide what you think is true. Now, he don't talk like that. Rather, quite simply, you know what he's saying? Look, use your head. Okay, use your head. Don't be so open-minded that your brains fall out. Young people. <laughs> Young people. Don't be so open-minded when you start meeting friends who are not believers and say, you just need to be more open-minded. Never be so open-minded that your brains fall out. Take your brains, take them off the shelf, put them back in your head is what Paul argues. Because he's talking and arguing from not only propriety, but also from nature and creation. Now, let me say this. Some Christians in the past have taken this text as an absolute command for women to wear hats in church. Okay, again, context is key. Thank you that you don't wear hats because then you block someone who's behind you, especially if they're big and fancy. Paul is addressing various cultural practices here that are being adopted into the church of Jesus Christ that were obstructing headship distinctions. Still with me? Okay, good. So now Paul's going to drive home his point arguing from nature, okay? Because does nature teach us certain things, beloved? You better believe it. Verse 14, does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it's a dishonor to him. Now, let me say this. Ultimately, the application here with regard to men has really little to do with hair length. This has to do with gender confusion, okay? Some of you guys were hippies back in the day. Some of us were long hair rockers back in the day. Some of you, when you had hair, had long hair. I was with my wife at the store the other day, and usually what happens is my wife actually does the shopping, and I do the meandering, I just mill around. And I turned the corner, I ran into two women that, I, that I've known. They, one of them was my old neighbor in an old neighborhood, and she was with her sister. I haven't seen the sister for decades. She goes, John, I would not have recognized you. The last time I saw you, you had hair down to the middle of your back. And I said, yeah, that's true. I said, wow, that was a long time ago. And let me assure you this. When I had long hair, I was not trying to look feminine. <laughs> okay? So that's really not what he's after here. Leon Morris comments here, and he says this, quote, while there are several images in Greek history of men having long hair, i.e. the Spartans and Greek philosophers and sages, most men wore their hair short due to the nature of the work they performed and to distinguish themselves from women. So the long hair here, beloved, is that long hair is like that of a woman, okay? Now, if you had long hair and you were a Roman gladiator, I can assure you, you were tr not trying to be feminine. You just get done whacking some guy's head off. You're not trying to be feminine in the arena. So what this has to do is with long hair in the form of an, of an androgynous hairstyle. 
right? A, a neutral sexuality, perhaps associated with female temple prostitutes in that day who had long hair, didn't cover it, and they decorated things within their long hair. And this is to be like a fashionable elite woman in Corinth of that day or with regard to temple prostitutes of the day where men would grow their hair like that of a temple prostitute because they themselves were homosexual prostitutes. See, everything tied in here culturally is very important. It's not merely long hair. And by the way, when he says, does not even nature itself teach you, the word for nature is phusis. It's the same word that the Apostle Paul uses in Romans chapter 1 and verse 26 to try describing homosexuality, which is against what? Nature. In other words, there's a witness that nature has. It's natural. This, not natural. Trying to look like a chick, not natural. A woman, not natural. Guys, Quite simply, what he's saying, men should be men, women should be women. Men should not try to look like, sound like, walk like, talk like a woman, nor should a woman walk like, talk like, and sound like a man. Because nature testifies against it. When you're in a culture where men are trying to be effeminate, it's rebellion against God. When a woman intentionally tries to look masculine, that's rebellion against God. A woman who takes male hormones, run into her. Hey, how you doing? <laughs> what are you smoking, three packs of Marlboros now or what? <laughs> a day. I just got a cold. Well, you were talking like that eight months ago. Trying to appear as a man. Nature testifies to those created in the image of God. They're created male and female. So Paul's point here, is in, in, right here in this section, is that men are not to dress nor to wear hairstyles like that of a woman because God, quite simply, creates us male and female. And any kind of androgynous sexuality is straight-up defiance against your creator. We're all clear on that, amen, in the culture in which we live. Be clear. Part of being a divine image-bearer of God means that you are either male or female. If you're going to try to make yourself into a man when you're a woman, when they dig up your bones in 100 years, guess what they're going to detect? This was a woman. That's a scientific fact. This was a female. So nature itself teaches us, Paul says, says this is not the way it ought to be done. Now, is our society littered with this kind of confusion or what? That's blasphemy. Now, you may wonder, why is it like this today in such an accelerated way? It wasn't like this 30 years ago, 20 years ago, let alone even 10 years ago. Let me tell you why. Because Almighty God has judged this society's sin with more sin. 
It's called the wrath of abandonment. Romans chapter one. Sometimes what God does when, when, when rebels blaspheme him and do things like this, it sometimes results in the Lord removing his hand of restraint, Romans 1.28, and he gives them up to what kind of mind? A debased mind. He turns them over to a debased mind to do things that are anything but natural. Verse 15b. Does not nature also teach us if a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her? Answer, yes, for her hair is given to her for a covering. Okay, by the way, hair length here for a woman isn't really the issue either because there are many very feminine looking cuts that are shorter. Amen? Amen, hairdressers. Very feminine looking. Look, the issue is men trying to look like women and women trying to look like men. That's the issue. There's a lot more going on in the church of Corinth, but here with regard to nature, that's the point. Okay? Now, for instance, a woman with a crew cut. I've seen a woman who has that kind of cut and she still looks very feminine because she carries herself very femininely. Is that a word? Femininely? It is now. But if I see a woman with a crew cut, perhaps with a chain wallet, in biker boots, she's trying to look like a guy. In a pit bull terrier <laughs> along her side. She's trying to look like a guy. I'm, hey, I'm being real. I told you I'd be politically incorrect. She's trying to look like a man. Don't look like a man. You're an image bearer of God made male or female. Don't let this happen in my church, says the Lord Jesus Christ. Not me, Jesus' words. It's his church, not my church. Verse 16. Now, in case you want to be contentious about this, if anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no other practice, nor have the churches of God. In other words, Paul's not going to argue about this with anybody, okay? This isn't up for debate. So he points to creation, natural law, and Christian propriety. <laughs> Beautiful, isn't it simple? Are you confused in our culture today? Read the Bible, baby. It does not change. Now, the contentious means to be a strife lover, to be quarrelsome. Therefore, okay, Corinthians, if you're inclined to be contentious here, in other words, if you want to bow up against this truth, you're bowing up against the teaching of nature, you're bowing up against apostolic authority, you're, you're bowing up against the practice of Christ's church, and therefore, you're bowing up against the head of the church, who is Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ. So your problem is not with me, the apostle. Your problem is with God, says the apostle Paul. Anyone in 2020, anyone here at Pacific Hope want to bow up against this mandate? Your problem is not with the messenger. Your problem is with God. 
There's a God-designed difference, amen, between maleness and femaleness, between masculinity and femininity, and it's to be embraced. You want to celebrate something? Celebrate that. It is to be celebrated and affirmed, not minimized, not ignored, not blurred, and certainly not interchanged. Be not confused. God's word, the Bible, clearly teaches complementary roles in the home, church, and society. And although culture despises it, we must stand firm on this, beloved. We must stand firm. In our parenting, you raise your little boys to be little boys. You raise your little girls to be little girls. But daddy, I feel like a boy. I don't care what you feel like. You're not a boy. You're a girl. And I love you enough to tell you the truth. So gender distinctions should be noticeable in our gathering of worship. Amen? I don't see any women trying to look like a man, and I don't see any man trying to look like a woman. I really have a problem with that. So don't do that. Male leadership in the church. Okay, we go back to... to to, to ch- verses 3 and 4, male leadership in the church is to demonstrate a wholehearted submission to Jesus Christ who is our head. Wholehearted submission, verse 3, that's the divine design. That is the perfect paradigm for orderliness within the church of Jesus Christ. And again, if you get it wrong at the top, the bottom will fall out. It's dangerous. So at a time, as I close, at a time when, when the pressure to dissolve gender distinctions is spinning absolutely out of control, at a time when authority, submission, design in family and church is profoundly offensive to the unbelieving world, at such a time, we need reminding that this is a non-negotiable. Non-negotiable. How do you negotiate? with the unbelieving world, in love, with truth. This is part of Christian discipleship, and it mirrors the gospel pattern of Christian submission to the Father with regard to his Son, sending his Son for the sake of our wretched souls, for our salvation. So this is a pattern of creation, If this is a pattern of creation, if this is ordained by God, if this is the perfect paradigm for orderliness, are we going to let the world call the shots for us, church? Are we? No. Absolutely not. Many churches are. When you see a church that has a a, a rainbow flag out front, let me assure you they're not celebrating God's covenant with Noah, never to flood the earth again. They've caved, they've crumbled. They're cowards and they need to repent. And let's pray they repent. That is not the orderliness ordained by God for his church. Homosexuals of all stripes, you are welcome to come here and listen to the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're not gonna cater to you to change the orderliness of worship. Come in here, bring your friends. 
Go tell your homosexual friends, lesbian friends, come to, come to Pacific Hope Church. We'll welcome them in. And they'll be loved enough to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, the free grace gospel of Jesus Christ. They need to be set free as much as I did. They're no greater sinner than as am I. Amen. See, the world, if we're going to cater to the world, the world doesn't even believe that God Almighty created the universe, let alone them. And the fact that Jesus came to this earth to atone for sins, that's lunacy to them. You're going to bow to them? Don't bow. Love them enough. When given the opportunity, tell them the truth. You don't have to stand with banners like these lunatics. They call themselves Christians. Have you seen these people with hate signs and all this? That's anything but Christian. Look, the good news of Jesus Christ has nothing to do with head coverings if context is misunderstood here. Do we get this, beloved? Okay. The good news is this. God has made us to know him. God has made us to reflect his image, to reflect his character, yet we have all sinned against him, every single one of us. The wages of sin is death. We fall short of the glory of God. And because of that, we have stored up wrath upon wrath, and we deserve his just punishment, and that means hell. Do you deserve it? I deserve it. More than anyone in here, that's what I deserve. But if it were not for the loving grace of gospel love by the sending of our Lord Jesus Christ, I'd be going to hell as well. Why? Why not? Because Jesus came and he took on flesh. I'm not going to hell because Jesus took on flesh, lived a perfectly righteous life in my place, was crucified, and there, while he was being crucified, was bearing the unmitigated wrath of God against my sin. Punishing Christ in my place. And by repenting and placing your trust and faith in Jesus Christ, the one whom God raised up victoriously from the dead, he'll also raise you up in the end. Guaranteed. Right now for eternity. So if you're not in Christ, come to Christ by faith. Well, I don't struggle with these kind of sins. It don't matter. You're a rebel. Repent and be saved by the blood of Jesus Christ, and he will certainly raise you up as well. So then, it's from out of the gospel, from out of the loving kindness of God, that we live to reflect his glory, following his divine design, following his perfect paradigm for orderliness within the church the gathered church of Jesus Christ. For we are followers of Christ who is our head. May we not shame him. Amen? Amen. Father, thank you for your word. As complicated as it may be sometimes, um, help us to gather the glorious truths within this morning. Sanctify our hearts by way of this truth. Um, any who are outside of Christ listening, I pray that they be brought to this place of glorious repentance and understanding perhaps for the first time the glorious work of your son on the behalf of sinners like us to save them and to lift them up and to assure them of eternal life in Christ. For his name we pray, amen.